Scripture for our message this morning comes from the book of Acts. We'll be looking at chapter 17, starting with verse 16, and then going all the way to the end of the chapter. So if you have a Bible, would ask that you would turn there. If you don't have one, I believe there's one in the pew for you. Um, page 1110 is where we'll be starting. Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 16. Hear now the very word of God. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers and in the, in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what all these things mean. For the, all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of man to dwell on the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead." And when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. As far the reading of God's holy word, let us pray. Lord God, we are so grateful once again for the example that Paul sets for us here as he is in Athens, and he interacts with the people there. And we know that there is much both about you and about how we we ourselves should conduct ourselves in this life that we may learn. And so we ask that you would be our teacher this morning and that you would inhabit even these words that are spoken from your word that we might learn from you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, I think if I ask for a show of hands, how many of you miss having the pandemic? I would hope that almost none of you would raise your hands at this point. It was a time where much was taken from us in a lot of ways, uh, where even our ability to assemble and worship for a time was taken from us. And some of the things that we were that we had taken from us were very important things. There were people who had their health taken from them, and some people even had their loved ones taken from them. And of course, that's that was a very serious matter to lose those things. And yet, there were things that I think each and every one of us missed that might be more trivial things, but nonetheless meant something to us and were difficult uh, to endure the time through the pandemic. And uh, for my wife and myself, one of those things was international travel. Uh, We generally like to take at least one trip overseas each year. We we enjoy that. And uh, nothing was curtailed more than travel, particularly travel overseas. And as time went on, it just seemed reasonable. Well, surely this is going to come to an end at some point. Surely this is going to end and we'll be able to do this again. And in the hope that we'd be able to do it again, we planned a trip uh, last uh, June to Portugal. And uh, as the time for the trip uh, got closer and closer, uh, our flights kept getting canceled and the entry restrictions weren't being lifted. And it really just looked like we against everything that we had thought, weren't going to be able to go. And so we kind of thought, well, where can we go? Well, we found out that Greece had just opened up and was, was making availing itself to travelers from the U.S. And we said, well, want to go to Greece? And so we went. And uh, with only about six months planning, we've never, we've never so whimsically taken a trip of that magnitude before in our lives. And with, when you go to a new place like that, particularly where you haven't done a lot of reading on what it's like or really prepared yourself to go, when you arrive, you're a little bit, a little bit shy. You don't want to do anything that might violate some custom or make you stand out, particularly when you're in the airport uh, and you haven't, uh, you haven't really been given uh, official permission to enter the country yet. And I quickly discerned that New Testament Greek was of no value in, uh, in, reading, the, in reading the language. Uh, and so we were, we were a little bit, we were a little bit shy and, and, uh, you know, we waited until our passport got stamped and really didn't want to draw any sort of attention to ourselves. We just wanted to blend in as we entered Athens. Well, as Paul entered Athens, he, like he was everywhere he goes, was very poor at blending in and uh, really uh, could not do what we were trying to do in not, tra- not attracting t- attention to himself. And he did what he does everywhere. He told people about the risen Christ. And how he did that is very instructive to us on a number of levels. And we'll get into this first by looking at Paul's commitment to the gospel. And then we'll examine for a bit his presentation of the gospel. And then we will look at the responses to his presentation of the gospel. And finally... We'll take a look at our response to Paul. 
But first, his commitment to the gospel. Well, to really understand Paul's commitment to the gospel, you have to go beyond the bounds of this particular passage, and you have to understand what it was that brought Paul to Athens in the first place. So if we rewind the narrative of Acts back to chapter 16, we see that Paul didn't even want to be on this continent at this time. Paul was in the midst of a mission trip through Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. And it was only through a dream that he received and a man speaking to him in this dream who was from Macedonia saying, please come over and help us, that Paul went went to Macedonia from Turkey, Asia, to Macedonia, which is present-day Greece, Europe. So Paul actually wasn't even expecting to be on this continent, let alone in Athens. And where Paul washes ashore, as it were, in Macedonia is Philippi. Now Philippi prided itself in being something of a little Rome. Philippi, uh, Philippi had a high value on Roman citizenship, had a very tiny Jewish population. Uh, we know it was tiny because there was no synagogue there, and you only needed ten Jewish men to form a, to form a synagogue. And so Paul preached to Lydia and others, and he had, during the course of his time there, this slave girl that kept following him around, who had a spirit of divination in her, and kept at the top of her voice saying, listen to these men, they're sent from the one true God, and other such things. And Paul, seemingly out of annoyance, eventually cast the spirit out of her, and her ability to tell fortunes was gone. And the people that owned her took unkindly to this, to say the least. They dragged Paul and Silas into the, into the public square. They beat them severely, and they threw them in jail. And it was there in jail that an earthquake took place and loosed their chains. They came upon the jailer, who, uh, who was going to kill himself, actually, because of the presumptive escape of all the prisoners. They said, we're still here. They witnessed to him. He treated their wounds. He witnessed to his whole family. They all were baptized. And then Paul, as soon as it was determined that he was a Roman citizen and was, was tried without, without process, uh, the city fathers wanted Paul to leave and leave very quickly, which he did, but only after he visited the group and, in a sense, cast this cloak of protection of his Roman citizenship over this tiny, fledgling church in Philippi uh, there that they might not be mistreated in his absence. So where he went from there, he went to Thessalonica, which is modern-day Thessaloniki, um, and uh, he went there with, with Silas, and there he did preach in the synagogue, and he established a church, got good response, right up until the point where the Jews determined that he was getting a better response than they typically did, and they started a riot there as well. And they dragged uh, one of the people, uh, one of the young Christians that was associated with Paul before the city council and fined him, and Paul was driven from the city by this violent riot, and he was driven to Berea. And we're told that the people in Berea were more, and I think the King James says, noble-minded about uh, about their response to the gospel. And they went and looked at the Old Testament to see that everything Paul was saying about Christ 
was actually true and was supported by the Old Testament narrative. And they were and and Paul seemed to be making good progress in Berea right up until the point the same crowd that had driven him out of Thessalonica came to Berea and once and drove him out of that city. Now at that point it was at that point that Paul's companions took him all the way to Athens. And Athens is not close to Berea. Even today, we are talking about a six-hour car ride, roughly, to drive from Berea to Athens. And then we're talking about probably a couple of days' journey by foot uh, to get him there. So he is taken far away from the riots, far away also from anybody that is a support and a comfort to him and he's told and and he is left in Athens and he says please come quickly back he asks for he asks that Silas and Timothy come and join him in Athens now after all that um, left by himself on the heels of beating imprisonment a violent riot erupting everywhere that he preaches the gospel. I think if there were a missionary board that was advising Paul at this point, they would tell him, please take a few days, just rest. We, you're by yourself now. If you get into trouble in Athens, like you seem to have gotten in trouble everywhere on this continent up until this point, there's nobody here to bail you out. You've had a rough time. Just take it easy for a few days. We'll be here. We'll be there shortly. Well, that's not what Paul did, is it? Instead, while he's waiting in Athens, we're told that his spirit is provoked within him by seeing around him a city full of idols. And to say that Athens is a city full of idols may actually understate the extent of idolatry that was present there. The city itself was named for the goddess Athena. And its defining feature, then as now, was this Acropolis hilltop. And, they've, and sitting on that was this Parthenon that was this giant temple to Athena the Virgin. And beyond that, there there would be temples everywhere throughout the city to other figures of Greek mythology, such as Zeus and Poseidon. And I can tell you, having visited there less than a year ago, even today, the remnants of all these monuments still dominate and define the city of Athens. And the Acropolis hilltop and the Parthenon remain its most recognizable landmarks. If you've ever seen a picture of Athens, I all but guarantee you that's in the picture. You're looking, you're still looking at that hilltop. And uh, in Paul's time, that structure would have already been five centuries old, but it would have been before the wars and the plundering that took place in Athens that sort of uh, took away a lot of the grandeur of it. It would have been breathtaking, one of the greatest architectural feats of the known world at that time. But as impressive as it was, it represented a culture that was literally steeped in idolatry. And no matter how mentally or physically exhausted Paul might have been, 
there is no way that he could bring himself to ignore the false religion surrounding him without responding to it. Because for Paul, devotion to the propagation of the gospel was utterly single-minded, as his words in 1 Corinthians 9s would indicate. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So regardless of his earthly condition, who was with him, or what opposition he might face, Paul was compelled to preach the gospel. It was a necessity laid upon him by God, and he knew that the gospel was the power of God unto salvation. So with the issue settled as to whether Paul was going to preach the gospel, let's look at his presentation of the gospel in Athens. Now, he starts his exposition of the gospel in the same place he customarily started it, in the synagogue. And starting in synagogues, particularly a synagogue in Athens, made a lot of sense because there's a basis of common knowledge of the Old Testament with his audience. And as we saw in Berea, they could refer back to that common knowledge base and really see that this Christ is the prophesied Messiah. And Paul could demonstrate that even if they weren't quite so in, quite so uh, predisposed to look it up themselves. But the problem with that approach in Athens is that Paul would never get the gospel to the broader culture by merely spending time with the few other monotheists that, that were there. And so Paul ventured forth to what was known as the Agora, the marketplace, which was a both a seat of local government and a place of exchange. It was kind of like the mall and the state capital all rolled into one. It was the it was the obvious and customary gathering place for people in in Athens. And we're told that he reasoned with those who happened to be there. What we're not told are whatever sort of ice-breaking questions Paul might have asked. You don't know if he walked up to people and said on a scale of 0 to 100%, how sure are you if you died today that you'd go to heaven? Or some such question. Uh, we're also not told how awkward these conversations might have been. And there's probably a good chance that many of them were very awkward. We're only told that Paul went there day after day after day. And in the course of engaging people like this, he comes across Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And Epicurean and Stoic philosophers are actually polar opposites in terms of their approach to enlightenment. And... The Epicureans, on the one hand, would promote the pursuit of pleasure as the means of gaining greater wisdom, and the Stoics would promote restraint as that path. And yet somehow, Paul's discourse catches both of their attentions. Now, we're told in our passage today that some dismiss him as a babbler, but others are truly intrigued. And they 
really don't know what to make of him and this message that he is giving of this resurrected Christ. Paul is presenting something genuinely new to the Athenians. And we're told that they love nothing more than something new. And a new deity with which they are unfamiliar is particularly enticing to the denizens of a city that is full of places of worship to various gods. And this interest that he generates gets him an appearance before the council which meets on the Areopagus. Now, the very meeting place where they are is itself a monument to a god. Areopagus literally means Mars Hill. And the Areopagus stands um, looking over the Agora and is below the Parthenon. Below, just it's halfway up the hill of the Acropolis, and um, and so he it is it was a place where this council met, and this is likely both a uh, both a sort of uh, council that made determinations of law, but also made moral determinations of things that came in. So it's uh, they're they're evaluating moral matters in the city now. Think about how incredible this is. Paul left entirely on his own in this unfamiliar city simply by going out and presenting the gospel to whoever would listen to him now finds himself before the city fathers. And his presentation to them is nothing short of masterful. Rather than than criticizing them for their idolatry, He plays off of their obvious religiousness. And he speaks of this altar that he saw in the city to an unknown God and declares that he is there to make that very God known to them. Now this God of Paul's made everyone and everything and doesn't dwell in man-made temples like the elaborate ones which would have been visible while he was speaking. And depending on which way Paul was facing at the Areopagus, he could have either gestured with his right hand to the Parthenon right there, or he would have been looking at the Parthenon uh, uh, straight on if he was down the hill, because the Areopagus is at a slight slope. Um, but it would, have, it would have made for a powerful uh, visual illustration of what he's talking about when he says these things, these places made by man's hands because they were all over the place and the the primary one was right in their field of view. This God of Paul's is a creator God and he continues to to providentially exert his sovereignty over humans, determining their places of habitation and giving them a chance to know him. And even though this God is more powerful than any of the gods in the Greek pantheon. He is somehow also near us. And we are his offspring, as is said by one of their own poets. This God is near, and he is overlooking times of ignorant disobedience by offering an opportunity to repent and know him ahead of the judgment through this risen Christ. Now, in reality, this is a very attractive presentation on its face. 
Paul is proclaiming to them a more powerful God than they have ever imagined. And this God is offering them terms of appeasement. And honestly, given the behavior of all the gods in the Greek pantheon who tended to have these exaggerated human flaws and generally get angry with humans and use them for uh, use them as punching bags in times and and would constantly be in a very arbitrary fashion displaying their wrath well here's this more powerful god actually extending a hand to them and offering them terms of appeasement. It's far more than they would have expected out of anything they worshipped. And this masterful presentation generates multiple responses that we will see now. And we see in this passage three basic responses to Paul's presentation of the risen Christ. First, regardless of the inherent appeal of what Paul is saying here, the notion of bodily resurrection from the dead is a bridge too far for some of the assembled intellectuals, and they begin to mock. Now, there are a number of philosophical underpinnings uh, to this, and, and kind of nailing down which is at play here, there are probably multiple ones at play, actually, uh, be a matter of speculation, but suffice it to say, they... They did not believe in a bodily resurrection. They believed only in a spiritual resurrection that that would take place. So what Paul is presenting is nonsense to them. For others, they'd like to hear more about this. And this is very much in accord with their won't to hear about all things new. This is simply Athenians being Athenians here, saying they want to hear more about this new thing. But for a third group, however, this presentation proves compelling, and they embrace this salvation by faith. We're told that two of them are a man named Dionysius and a woman named Damaris. And these would seem to have been people of some repute, which almost certainly in the case of Dionysius, because he has added to his name uh, the designation the Areopagite, meaning he was likely a member of, the ver- of that council, a permanent member of the council. Now, in addition to these, these three responses, there is a, another response, and it's the one that landed Paul in Athens in the first place. And that is the response of a violent riot breaking out in response to the gospel. Now, I'm generally pretty cautious about seeing things that took place in the book of Acts and saying that that now establishes some sort of paradigm for how the church should be today because I think there are a lot of good reasons to believe they were acting in a different age with apostles present and so forth. But I will say that I actually think these four responses really are generally what we can expect even today to a presentation of the gospel. Because even today, it's going to come across as just simply scandalous to their reason for a transcendent, to believe in a transcendent God who came to earth, died, and was raised from the dead. They will mock this belief just as those in Athens mocked Paul 
as a belief we've simply grown out of as modern people. Who, who really could believe such a thing anymore? And there'll be others, and maybe you know some people like this, that want to hear it over and over again, but always want to keep their options open. They want, to, they want to hear the gospel, but they seem to have a very difficult time committing to it and giving their life to it. They view the gospel as maybe a curiosity, even perhaps quite interesting, but not something to base one's life upon, actually. Still, there are others who respond angrily to the very notion of a creator God. They see this belief as harmful even. And I will admit that I have certainly received such responses when trying to present the gospel. A number of years ago, I was on a rental car bus in Los Angeles, and uh, another gentleman got aboard, sits next to me, and starts telling me what he did, and asked me, well, so what do you do? I said, well, I work for a Christian missionary organization, which I did at the time. And I can almost visibly see the veins come out of the guy's neck upon hearing that that's what I did for a living. And he just just went into this diatribe. I can't believe somebody would do that for a living. I can't. This is the. It's so totally and demonstrably false. Haven't you ever read the name of the rose? And he just went on and on about how all the corruption in the Roman Catholic Church and religion's really the problem in this world. And that's why wars start. And and he just went on and on. Then we came to his stop, which was before mine. He and he just stomped off the bus. And I just I never got a word in edgewise. I uh, and I just think I said something like. Have a nice day. And, uh, and, and he moved on. And there's a lot of reasons why people respond that way to the gospel. They, uh, some people have had bad experiences with people who, who claim to be Christians. And they may even have had bad experiences with their own family that sort of transfer over to the way that they look at God. Um, so there, is, there are a lot of reasons why people give that sort of response when they hear the gospel. But in spite of all of that, I think there is a reasonable expectation that as the gospel is presented, the Spirit will be at work convincing the hearts of those who hear and causing them to embrace this offer of eternal life. And that brings us to what this has to do with us. Now, we may not have the same call on our lives where Paul, Paul can say, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. In fact, I dare say that none of us are Paul. And even in spite of that, there are certain, some, certain people that are extraordinarily set apart for the task of preaching the gospel. A number of you, I think, are probably familiar with Bill Welzine, um, who for a long time was pastor of Keys Presbyterian Church. He was He's in retirement now, but even in retirement, Bill goes out to Mallory Square in Key West on every Wednesday evening. And if you've never been to Key West or to Mallory Square, Mallory Square is where people go at sunset to watch the sun, watch the sun go down. And it attracts all kinds of people there. There are 
people juggling, juggling flaming batons, and there are other people eating fire and swallowing swords and doing all sorts of things, and uh, you know mimes and sort of every sort of performer that you can imagine. And alongside all of that is Bill with a whiteboard, drawing out as he has for many years the gospel in the midst of all of that, and. Bill, over the course of years, has has received death threats uh, while he's while he's been there in Key West. And frankly, what he does scares me to death. And uh, and uh, um, but I think there's a there's a special call on Bill's life that that he is just he is just more he is just bolder and able to. Continue to present the gospel, and it just it just falls off his lips very naturally, even in other settings. But I will say that even if we're not Bill Welzine and certainly not Paul, each of us, because of what we've believed, have has a familiarity with the gospel that ought to be sufficient to retell it. You know that you're a sinner. If you don't know that, I'm here to tell you you're a sinner. And so is everybody else in this room, and so is everybody else outside this room. It is common to the human condition. And you should know that Jesus provides the only solution to that sin. And that has eternal implications for those who believe in him and for those who don't. Beyond that, each of us should know that the gospel is very good news. It's the best news ever told to man, and that God is even today still about the business of setting apart for himself a people through his spirit and by means of those who will tell this good news to others. And at times, I think we forget the fact that this is good news and that even, as, even though it seems like the entire world around us is comprised of people who stubbornly don't want to believe, that's not entirely true. The Spirit is even today setting apart those whom He would call out of darkness and into light. As Paul says in Romans 10, and he's quoting Isaiah 52 and saying this, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now this quote tells us a couple of things. First of all, it affirms that human beings are God's chosen agents of transmission for the gospel to other human beings. But second, and perhaps more importantly, it tells us something about the message itself. Because you have to see that feet were in that day and continue to be to this day in that part of the world the absolute most ignoble part of the human body. And you can sort of understand that. In Jesus' day, you're wearing open shoe, open-toed sandals. You're walking for miles on dusty roads and what would happen to your feet in all uh, during all of that they became 
just pretty gross. And it's why when you entered a house, water was provided for you to wash your feet. And they were considered to be the part of the body that no one wanted to touch. And as such, the task of washing those feet fell to the lowliest servant in the house, which does put Jesus washing the disciples' feet in John 13 into a little bit of different perspective. And even today, if you were to go to the Middle East and you were to sit across from somebody and cross your legs and show them the sole of your shoe, that would be an act considered roughly equivalent to raising your middle finger to them in this country. Feet were considered to be and are considered to be gross. And yet, that passage in Isaiah that Paul quotes tells us how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. This is not about some better form of nail polish. This is about the majesty of the message itself, which transforms even the feet of those who bring it into something that are beautiful, rather than being disgusting, as they would more commonly be seen. Even the very disgusting feet of those who bring this wonderful message are beautiful as they bring that message. Now, we're not called to be apostles, but we are called to be able to give a defense for the hope that is within us in 1 Peter 3. And Paul here shows us how to both creatively and sensitively communicate that good news while showing us a zeal for doing so that is without equal. Now, I seriously doubt that any of us here are going to match either Paul's zeal or his eloquence. But we do have the same message. And we do have a world that desperately needs to hear it. Beyond that, we have the same spirit which goes before us. We might not stop to talk to random people every day in the marketplace, as Paul did, or preach open air. But we do, I think, need to be perhaps more open than we are and looking to opportunities that God gives us to tell this good news that we know. And if we somehow feel uncomfortable with the message, well, then perhaps that says something about our familiarity with it and we need to dive into it more understand better how wonderful it is that we've been saved. The good news of the gospel reached us because someone cared enough to share it. It isn't too much to ask us to pass it along. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you chose us and that you appointed means to reach us with this wonderful message of the gospel. Lord, we ask that as we have come to know you through this gospel, that you would use us as your ambassadors in this world, that we might shine forth the light upon others that has been shown on us, that you might help us to live lives that are above reproach, that represent well the hope that we have and the God that we serve. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Our hymn of response is number 374, Jesus Shall Reign Wherever the Sun. This is Isaac Watts's, I think, rather brilliant uh, translation of Psalm 72 in light of the advent of Christ. As you're finding that, please stand with me.